Northeast Missouri is one of the state's most traditionally Democratic regions. But over the past decade, it's become so Republican that Chad Perkins was able to win a state legislative seat without a Democratic general election opponent. The Bowling Green Republican joins us on the latest episode of Politically Speaking to break down Northeast Missouri's Republican shift and some of the big issues he hopes to tackle in Jefferson City. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision and everybody in the room looks like you, you need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. We want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent, Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me from a restaurant in Bowling Green, Missouri, we have the state representative-elect for, is it the 40th district? The 40th district. That's northern Lincoln, all of Pike, all of Rawls, and the largest majority of Monroe County. So it's about 1,900 square miles. So that's Chad Perkins, by the way. And he answered my first question without me even asking, which is, what is the 40th district? Uh, welcome to the show. Um, I'm really excited for this because anybody who listens to this show knows that I'm obsessed with Northeast Missouri politics. You, you represent a great district. It's a historic district. Uh, I believe that Mark Twain was born there in uh, Florida, Missouri. Uh, and and uh, Champ Clark is obviously from Bowling Green. My uh, house is literally about three blocks away from Champ Clark's house. Yeah. My good friends, uh, Ellie Glenn Harmon is from Louisiana. And Jay Scherter is from Bowling Green. But most importantly, uh, Bowling Green, Missouri, in the 40th District is home to Kane, also known as Glenn Jacobs, who happens to be one of the greatest wrestlers in history and the mayor of Knox County, Tennessee. I believe you actually met him a few few years ago. I have met him a number of times. And I got to tell you, Jason, that guy is enormous. I mean, they don't I, I know that the WWE gets uh a lot of bad press about exaggerating things, but that guy really is a giant. Yeah, I believe he's like 6'10", and I've heard he's a really nice guy. I, I, I expect him to be uh, a U.S. senator for Tennessee in the next 10 to 20 years. But enough about Kane. This is not the first time you've run for office, as I'm sure you're going to explain, but for people that don't know much about you, who is Chad Perkins? Well, I'm a native to here in Bowling Green. You know, other than you know going away to school, I'm, this has always been my home. My family moved here. 160 years ago. I've been mayor here in town, um, which is really my only experience really in, in, in politics is having had been mayor, which was a you know, positive uh, thing. Bowling Green's kind of a growing town. The revenue is decent. And I've always said, if you're governing, when the, when the money's coming in, you look like a genius, you know? So um, uh, being mayor in Bowling Green's a pretty, a pretty easy job compared to so many others, because you do have a pretty good revenue stream versus what it is, what is it is you expend. So, and then uh, worked in law enforcement for 20 years. I actually work in radio as well. I've worked in radio since I was 15 and, um, and you know, it beats working for a living, doesn't it? I had a, I had a teacher one time in school tell me that no one's ever going to pay me to talk for a living. And I guess I proved her wrong. 
Why did you decide to run for this seat? I think it was a multi-candidate primary. Five-way primary. Um, but you won You won pretty decisively. Like, I think you got, did you get over 50% of the vote? 51% in a five-way primary. So what do you think the, was it the fact that you're pretty well-known in Pike County that you think was the big difference? Or was it just campaigning really hard? Like, how did you win so enormously? Well, let me tell you that I think that in, when you're, whenever you're running for office, that the biggest mistake someone can make is to say, well, I'm going to wake up one morning and say, I'm going to run for office. That's not how it works. You know, I believe you got to lay that groundwork and you don't lay that groundwork over the course of six months. You lay that groundwork over the course of 20 years. And if you lay that groundwork effectively and you're a part of things, people, people are smart. They catch on. They say, oh, well, that guy showed up when he started running for office or that lady showed up when she started running for office, but I've never seen them before. That's, uh, you know, that's a mistake, whether it's in St. Louis County or if it's up here in Northeast Missouri, people know when you're truly interested, they know when you're engaged, they know when you care about their issues because you've been doing it for years. And I think that I've been doing that, you know, since I was a teenager. So if this had been 2006, the 40th district, I think, would have been probably a plus 10 Democratic district. Because Pike County is historically Democratic. Monroe County is one of the most Democratic counties ever in the state's history. Rawls and Lincoln are as well. Um, But you didn't even have a general election opponent. And the reason why I'm so interested in Northeast Missouri politics, part of it's a little bit of nostalgia. I covered Northeast Missouri politics when I was with the Columbia Tribune when I was 22, 23 years old. This has been the biggest instance in my political journalism career where I saw a Democratic area shift before my eyes to becoming a Republican stronghold. And I'm going to play a clip now from Gail Griffin Frolos, who I met while I was in Northeast Missouri, along with you and Justin Shepard in in June 2017. She explained what it was like being a Republican when she was growing up. I remember going to church and we were the only Republican family in our church. You and you kept your political beliefs to yourself and going all through growing up here, going through school, being in church, um, we, we were known, it was known, oh, they're Republican, but you kept that to yourself unless you wanted an argument or, or something from other people. And I went to Southern Baptist College and realized other Republicans existed. Um, and then I married a Navy man and on a Navy base, found other Republicans. But then even coming back here in the late 90s, moving back home in the early 2000s, it was still predominantly Democrat. So now flash forward to today. Donald Trump won places like Pike and Monroe County, 75 percent of the vote plus. Um, and now I think it's the opposite. I think if you say that you're a Democrat in Northeast Missouri, people look at you funny. And I've asked you this before. What what was the big? Why do you think this changed so much? What do you think was the big driver behind this shift? Let me let me tell you. Starting off, when I was a kid in my own household, you know, we grew up Democrats. I remember my dad saying, you know, that Republicans were for wealthy people. They didn't care about Democrats at all. Of course, now my dad calls me every day and he says that he's watching the news and he can't believe what Nancy Pelosi is doing. You know, so he's changed very much. Uh, and of course, he was a teamster for thirty years, so it was very much a union household. And Northeast Missouri is, is like that, isn't it? It's, uh, it's uh, kind of a dichotomy in the aspect that it's, it's staunchly pro-life, it's staunchly pro-Second Amendment, but it's also a union district. It's a blue-collar, working-class area. So, you know, you can do both here. And uh, you say that, that the districts change, and it's changed 
the way it votes, but I don't think it's ever changed its values. I think Northeast Missouri has always been a conservative area. Um, but we are also sort of, you know, a, a Christian based area of voting. Not to say that we're one issue voters. We're not. And we are overwhelmingly pro-life and uh, we're overwhelmingly pro, uh, you know, the United States' relationship with Israel, which, you know, we're all going to be very happy with the president, the way he's done that. But um, we're also you know, pro-gun people. It's very much a, a sportsman area up here as far as outdoors and hunting. And we're the greatest whitetail hunting area in the world. And so, um, you know, I think that, that guns and, and babies are, are big issues, but they're not the only issues. And uh, economic development, those are issues that are important here. And, and we feel like the president has done very well with the economy. So I don't know that Northeast Missouri has changed its values. It has certainly changed the way it votes. So if you were to ask me, I would, I would say that probably I think the Democratic Party has changed more than Northeast Missouri has. The I days want- of... The days of, uh, you know, Jimmy Carter or even a Bill Clinton seem to be kind of over. Oh, I want to touch on the economic development part of this, because as I was I've mentioned on other shows, one of the things that I've done throughout this pandemic is I've traveled to various states, state parks in rural Missouri, as well as some small towns that I'd never been to before. I went to Paris, Missouri for the first time. I went to Louisiana, Missouri for the first time. I went to uh, Mexico, Missouri, which I've been to a few times and. It really was striking how different, like the economic fortunes of rural Missouri is so disparate depending on where you are. And I was talking with uh, State Representative Kip Kendrick, who's from Monroe City. And I w- and this part was not in the podcast he was just in because we had to cut it for time. But I thought it was really interesting asking him, what do you think needs to be done to, you know, boost the economic fortunes of some places in, in Missouri? Here's what he had to say. It's going to be bringing our generation back to rural Missouri. And I, I think that there's part of me that was um, somewhat optimistic, and I'll, I'll remain optimistic about the, uh, the pandemic, a silver lining of the pandemic, uh, us working from home. And I think that you could see more people, more young people decide, hey, I can work anywhere. Why not move back to my rural community, my small town? Uh, where I know everybody, cost of living is low. I can, you know, I can have kind of uh, a more suburban, urban salary in rural Missouri. But that you can't do that without broadband infrastructure and a reliable, um, reliable broadband that's going to provide you that access to the global marketplace. I think that's one of the areas that is most concerning to me right now. I know that there are federal programs out there. We've done what we can with limited revenue at the state level to try to to build upon those federal efforts. I think we need to do more in Missouri to do that. So from hearing a lot of rural legislators, they talk about rural broadband all the time. And it sounds like a, a great idea, but it costs a lot of money. And to actually execute it, given that people live pretty far apart from one another in rural Missouri for, for the most part, uh, what would you want to do as a legislator to actually execute something like what Representative Kendrick was saying? Part of this district of the 40th is the is the it's the uh, format for how it should be done. And that's in Rawls County, the Rawls County Electric Cooperative. Back when, you know, President Obama talked about those shovel ready jobs and that there was money available for those back in 08, 09, 2010. They took advantage of that. They made them shovel ready and they, they laid, they laid uh, fiber optic high-speed internet all throughout Rawls County and then throughout parts of Pike and some of Monroe as well. 
but uh, there is terrific internet access throughout Rawls County. We need to make that available throughout the state of Missouri as a whole. I think the way to do that, and that's, keep in mind, rule, and Kip is a Democrat and I'm a Republican, so rural broadband isn't a partisan issue. Maybe how you best deliver that might be somewhat. I'm a fan, obviously, of, of incentives for electric cooperatives or other utility companies. Uh, you know, the internet's not exactly a utility. It certainly, it certainly hasn't been ruled that, but to many of us, it is. You know, if COVID taught us one thing, it's that we need to be able to work from home. We need to be able to go to the doctor from home. We need to be able to go to, um, to school from home. So you know, it is a utility that, that's almost a necessity for, for the way we live our lives. And so I would like to see us incentivize, even to a greater extent, rural electric cooperatives to um, to lay that fiber throughout the state so that high-speed internet is available for, for, for rural Missouri. The, the other thing I wanted to ask you about is COVID-19. How are people in your district responding to the virus? And, and what do you think of some of the calls, primarily from Democrats, to have like a universal mask mandate throughout the entire state of Missouri? Obviously, as you might imagine, I'm completely opposed to a mandate of any sort. Uh, here in rural Missouri, we, to some extent, live our lives the way we always did. There is not, um, you know, a, a hysteria. You know, people are being cautious. You know, there's some distancing. Um, some people wear masks, some don't. We believe in liberty here, obviously. And I think that whenever you mandate something, you give up some liberty. And um, as far as I'm, I, I don't know that there is a clause in the Constitution uh, where we live up our liberties because of a pandemic. And um, so I think that much of rural Missouri is continuing to live their lives the way they always have. And, you know, if you get COVID, that's, that's a, you know, if you've chosen not to wear a mask, it's your choice. And I understand you're going to say, well, your choice is now affecting me because, you know, you're spreading this to different people. All right. I mean, um, there's certainly a difference of opinion on that. You know, there's certainly this difference of opinion on that. I think that if I'm around someone who is wearing a mask, I'm wearing my mask as well, in large part out of respect for their wishes. But mo most of us in rural Missouri kind of go without much of the time. Because another thing that we've been hearing in St. Louis is that a lot of, and I don't know if it's that people are driving all the way from Pike County to St. Louis because you may have your hospital infrastructure there. But I think one of the issues is that rural Missouri in general does not have the hospital infrastructure to deal with the people that are getting so sick from COVID, they have to go to the hospital. Like, how are, What are you hearing about that? And is there anything that can be done on a state level to increase the capacity of rural Missouri hospitals so it doesn't overload like St. Louis hospitals where the population is bigger? So we have more cases here. And, and keep in mind, I do think that we benefit here in rural Missouri by by living further apart from one another. There's kind of something healthy about not living on top of each other. And so um, if you are hearing that there are greater outbreaks here than there are elsewhere, I don't know that that's true. You know, I've known people that have had it. I've known lots of people that have had it. And, uh, but I don't know that there are greater outbreaks here. I, I think that our hospitals here are largely dealing with it fairly well. Um, I do think that, you know, maybe some increased funding somehow for our rural Critical access hospitals are great. It certainly is a benefit to my district. Um, but um, I, I think our hospitals here are dealing just fine. And in my opinion, they, they could always use more money. They could always use more help. They could always use additional things. But I think that, you know, they're a group of very dedicated people who are, who are managing to get through it. 
uh, back in March, you know, there was so much we didn't know. And there's still a lot we don't know. But my goodness, the healthcare industry as a whole has really been able to, to fly with it pretty quickly and, and do things that, you know, when you think about it, it's really quite remarkable in the, in the amount of time they've done things. And just to in the education system as well, if you think about the way that the education system completely changed through uh, Zoom and through online, uh, they too were quite remarkable in the way that they handled it. When you are sworn in in January, that's going to be a time when the vaccine is going to become incrementally more and more available. From what I've heard, we're recording this on Wednesday, uh, December 9th. I assume that the Pfizer vaccine is going to be approved tomorrow, which is Thursday, by the time people hear this. And I think one of the challenges is, especially since this vaccine in particular has to be stored in super cold temperatures, there's another one it can be stored at less cold temperatures. I think one of the challenges is getting supplies of this vaccine to rural Missouri. What is kind of your expectation about like how that's going to be executed? What would you want state government to do to make sure that people in your district have have adequate access to the vaccine when it becomes available? Well, and of course, I've heard the governor's plan a little bit, and there is some storage facilities throughout the state. Um, none are in this district, but um, so that that might make it a little more difficult as it, as it pertains to transporting it to here. And how do you do that under the extremely, I mean, extremely cold temperatures that it's required to do so. So, you know, I don't know the answer to are you going to administer the vaccine actually here in the 40th district or do you have to travel somewhere? I don't know that. Um, so I do think that, you know, the way you prioritize who gets that vaccine is important. Uh, obviously the elderly, those who are at greater risks, I think they obviously should have the first opportunity to do that. And if it means somehow that you, you assist them in, in transporting them to it, if they're not able to, then that's what we're going to need to do because at the temperature, you're right, at the temperature it's got to be stored, it makes it almost impossible to be able to administer it all everywhere out throughout the state of Missouri. We'll be right back after this short break with State Representative-elect Chad Perkins. And we're back on Politically Speaking with State Representative-elect Chad Perkins. He is a Republican from beautiful Bowling Green, Missouri. I want to shift gears to uh, law enforcement and quote-unquote police reform. You are a former deputy sheriff for, for the Pike County Sheriff's Office. You mentioned, wh- what other law enforcement experience did you have before that, or was it always with the Pike County Sheriff? The majority of my time has been with Pike County. I did work for a short time with the Bowling Green Police Department, but the majority of the time has been with the Pike County Sheriff's Office. So the reason I wanted to talk about this is there's always like this perennial discussion about overhauling the criminal justice system and putting things in place whenever a police officer does bad things. And I'm sure you've been following a lot of the protest movement over over George Floyd. The thing is, like, uh, Bowling Green does have a significant black population. I think it would surprise people that think that, you know, northeast Missouri is is super, super white. It's not the case um, there. There you. So so the question of the relationship between police and black people is not a philosophical exercise. So I'd be really interested to hear what your perspective is going to be about, like, what should change, if anything, and, you know, if you even more so than Bowling Green, Louisiana, which is a neighboring community, which is, you know, one of the most beautiful towns you've ever seen. Right. Riverfront, beautiful old, you know, grand homes, the hills that, that go along with that. Louisiana has a very diverse population of both African-American, a very large African-American community and, and a, a large Hispanic community as well in Louisiana. And I think that um, I think that, you know, some of the problems that exist elsewhere, they have they exist here. 
you know, the, the things that happen in St. Louis City and St. Louis County happen in, in the 40th district as well. They don't happen, you know, with, with the frequency, but we also don't have the population, but it is happening here. Um, so, you know, I will say that, that, that law enforcement isn't a job for everyone. It, uh, but you know, I don't know that radio is a job for everyone either, right? So uh, now you, on the other hand, Jason, just do a great job, but it's not a job for everybody. Um, I think it's uh, a job for you know, if you're if you're getting into it because you want to be a tough guy, you're you're not going to be successful in law enforcement. It's largely uh, it's largely based on your personality. I've known a lot of folks over the years who who might stop someone for speeding, right? And they give them a break. They give them a warning. And then the, the person they stop just hates that cop. And they got a break when they were doing wrong. On the other hand, there have been lots of times when, when I've personally arrested somebody, and, and maybe multiple times, and here we are years later, and they, and they believe we're still good friends. You know, So the way you do your job, the way you talk to people, the way you treat people makes all the difference in the world. And so I can't speak to each individual issue that, that goes on and every a law enforcement complaint. I can't speak to that. I, I can't tell you who's right or who's wrong. And I do believe that probably every situation is different. You need to know the totality of those circumstances. But I do know from personal experience, the way that you, the police officer, the way that you, the law enforcement officer, addresses a situation, the way you talk to somebody, the way you treat somebody makes a lot of difference. This may seem like, a, like an insular point. But I do think it's worth maybe talking about, like, how police officers are, are regulated in Missouri. Like, the, the, the state legislature doesn't oversee the actions of police officers. There's a the post commission, basically. Now, and- that's, uh, that's, a, that's a part of the, leg- the, the, the executive branch, you know, as a part of the Missouri Department of Public Safety, the Missouri Police Officer Standards and Training is. And, of course, much like, you know, any other form of government, the governor appoints the, the, the director of public safety. So... You know, there is some elected official oversight to it. And uh, and of course, both the House and Senate have a, a you know, a, a public safety committee. So, uh, you know, there is some influence. It's not necessarily direct from the legislature, but there's a working relationship and the ability to to get some questions for people if they need to be. You know, some of the things that have been proposed over the years include like if whenever there's a police officer that, that kills somebody, you bring in a prosecutor from outside the county to look at it. I think that 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 actually that proposal has become less popular over time. Like neither Kim Gardner nor Wesley Bell have really adopted that policy, even though it was in the Ferguson Commission report. Um, there's also just general ideas about increasing like racial sensitivity training, which I think is probably already in place, I would assume. So. Yes, there's a lot of that in place. It's not a bad thing at all. You know, a lot of it is very good. It's very good training to to kind of uh, you know understand where people come from and why they feel the way they feel. Um, but, you know, if you, if you grew up here in the 40th district, you grew up in a community going to school where it is multicultural, uh, much more than a lot of people would expect. And uh, the playing field is, you know, maybe more even than it is in other areas. And that might help the fact that there's not a lot of those issues in this area. There are from time to time some, but not a lot. So, uh, you know, we we talk about some of these law enforcement criminal justice issues in a vacuum. I want to delve in a little bit more specificity. There have been state discussions about like how to change this the state laws around what sheriffs can do and how how they're paid, and which probably goes hand in hand with like how you get good people to be police officers. Like if you are are a a good upstanding person, 
um, but you're only going to be paid $28,000 a year to be a sheriff's deputy, well, you're probably going to go find another job that pays you $40,000 a year if you can. So talk a little bit about what you would want to do as a legislator to deal with the pay issues or any other things around sheriff's offices that you think the legislature should, should tackle. So the thing about when earlier you were talking about prosecutors with Kim Gardner, Wesley Bell, I'm not a fan of bringing another prosecutor in to oversee an investigation unless that particular prosecutor locally is asked for that because people get the prosecutor they they voted for. And uh, if you want a particular prosecutor, if your jurisdiction wants a particular prosecutor, and that's who you elected, that's who gets to make that decision. That's the way it works. Sheriffs are also elected, independently elected by the people of, of a given area. And that's that's the way it should be. But sheriffs are underpaid and their staffs are underpaid. So, uh, you know, I, I, I think I would probably support some state legislation that would require a minimum payment for, for uh, law enforcement. And I would, I would support that when it comes to education as well. I think that, that police officers and, and teachers are both notoriously underpaid. I, I think a, another thing I read, and I don't know if you were involved with the, the Pike County Jail or, or jails in general, but I, I believe that like COVID has been a real problem in every level of jails. And I think that your, your soon-to-be predecessor, Jim Hansen, who was the state representative for the 40th District, I think he was in charge of the corrections uh, committee. Uh, he, was the, he was the vice chair of the corrections committee, yeah. Which makes sense because there is a state uh, prison in, in Bowling Green. In uh, fact, the Department of Corrections is probably one of the largest employers in this district. You have a prison in Bowling Green. You have one in Vandalia, which is literally just a stone's throw outside the district. The district goes almost all the way to Moberly, where there's another prison. So, you know, you've got a lot of DOC employees in this district. And it certainly makes sense for someone from this district to be involved in corrections. Is that going to be a is that going to be a committee that you're going to want to be on? I have asked to be on that. I absolutely have asked to be on that committee, so, as well as public safety, because that is my background. What would you want to do to help prevent the spread of COVID in in various jails and prisons? I, I understand that some of these people to the to the public, they may not be sympathetic for various reasons. They may be sympathetic based on their individual cases, but. I think we would all agree that we don't really want large outbreaks of COVID-19 in these places just because we just don't. Like, these are still human beings. And I think that the state and the county and the cities are still entrusted to, you know, make sure they're alive until their sentence is, is done. What would you want to do to reduce that? Because it's been a really big problem, not only here, but nationwide. It certainly is. A, you know, it's an extraordinary time to be alive, one that you and I have never experienced or even you know, anyone that's really alive today has experienced it. It's been since, you know, 1918 that you've had anything like this. And those that were alive then were very, very little, you know. But uh, so the answer is complicated. The answer, if anyone says, well, here's what we do, they don't know. We're Much of what we're doing is being done in theory at the moment, isn't it? And, uh, you know, jail populations and prison populations are down at the moment. And that is, to some extent, by design because of COVID. So the things that once put a person in jail isn't putting them in jail at the moment. And so jail populations are down dramatically all across, at least certainly my area, and I think probably across the country. And, uh, you know, it, it's it's a part of it's it's because of what we're going through as a society with COVID-19. And uh, I think it's probably the right answer at the moment to keep those populations fairly low. Uh, you know, jail is a place for violent offenders. Um jails and prisons. And if you're not violent, you're probably not going there at the moment, by and large. And uh, 
and I understand that. I do think there's probably a time when we get back to doing things the way we once did. Um, I don't know if we ever fully get back to doing them the way we once did. Who knows? It's just it's just extraordinary. But I have no problem with those populations being down at the moment. There actually has been some discussions, and this may seem like a totally counterintuitive thing. People may be like, why would we give the vaccines to prisoners before we give it to the general population? But there has been discussion about moving them pretty high up in the in the line just because they're in an enclosed space. Um, have you heard anything from I, – obviously, you're not in, in office yet, but is that something that you would at least like to be in the realm of discussion? Or is that going to be a controversial thing to do when the general public hasn't gotten access to the vaccines yet? You're exactly right. The health care of, of someone in jail or prison is absolutely equal to anyone else. And, uh, you know, I, I think that those who are most at risk and most vulnerable are those who should get it first. and. Um, I think obviously that's the elder, that's those with with medical conditions. But if, you know, if sheriffs come to us and, uh, you know, uh, wardens from prisons come to us and and you have medical professionals saying this is the way it should be done. And, and they make an argument like the argument you just made. You mean your argument sounds like it makes sense, right? It, it, yeah, it makes sense. But I all my arguments are good. So, you know, that's why. <laughs> but no, I understand like people like, again, if I I'm a healthy 36 year old. I don't have any pre-existing conditions. It's probably going to be April, May, June before I get the vaccine. Right. And I may be like, well, you know, I want to go to Eastside Tavern in Columbia now. Give me the vaccine before somebody in prison. But I, I also understand conceptually you're going to get people infected that are are serving very low-level crimes and they may they may die along with murderers. Obviously, you don't even want people who are, who are serving or who are in prison or jail for for a, for a high level crime to get it and die. That's just not not what you want to have happen. No, not at all. I can also tell you that, you know, the, the, the court system as a whole is kind of getting a little backed up. So, you know, the things that would have been on, on a court docket for December might get pushed back to March or they might get pushed back to April because of social distancing. And, you know, maybe the faster we can get back to getting that court system operating the way that that it once did. Uh, that I mean, I can see the advantage to that. I'm not saying that I think that prisoners should be at the highest uh, level, but I'm saying that, you know, if you make a good argument to me, an argument that makes sense, I think you're going to find that if you make me a good argument, I'm going to be fairly rational with you. Before I let you go, um, is there anything else about entering into the Missouri legislature that you're looking forward to? Yeah, absolutely. I think that obviously we've talked about um, we've talked about uh, high speed Internet. Uh, that's a priority. You're going to find that in my district, there's something called the Grain Belt Express that if you're not familiar with, you should probably research. It's a very controversial issue in this district. And it has to do with, um, you know, a, a high, high powered energy line, power line coming across people's property and the use of eminent domain to do that. And so, you know, personal property and ownership rights are going to be an issue. And uh, it's an issue that I'm, I'm passionate about ensuring that people's uh, personal property and private property ownership rights are insured. Um, in Southern Missouri, an issue that, you know, if you live in Northern Missouri, there's an issue in Southern Missouri that most of us are unaware of. And that's uh, wild hogs existing in Southern Missouri and, and the damage they do there. And coming from Northeast Missouri until I got to Jefferson City, I didn't even know it was an issue, but it is a very big issue. And so we'll see how that play, that that pans out. It's going to be an issue that comes up this year and certainly worth looking at. You can't 
ever get away from the feral hog issue, which was we talked about in depth with uh, State Representative Hannah Kelly in a past episode of Politically Speaking. Hannah is a good friend of mine, and she lives right there in the heart of it, right? So if you live up here, I mean, I had no idea Missouri even had that many wild hogs because I live in northern, northeast Missouri. I had no idea it was an issue, but it is a very big issue. Well, Representative-elect Perkins, thank you so much for joining us. We will definitely have you back in the years ahead because you you, you can tell you you know how to do this radio stuff. It's It's very obvious, even though you didn't get paid for it. I've been told I have a face for it. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. I don't know if you're on Twitter, but is there any other place on the Internet where people can learn more about you or eventually contact you professionally? You know, I've got, you know, I've got a personal Facebook page that I respond to messages on all the time. Uh, nobody's getting blocked on there, you know, and I'm, I've got uh, a campaign Facebook page as well. So, you know, feel free to hit me up on either one of those. Be glad to, you know, uh, visit, talk. I give out my cell phone number, whatever. If somebody shoots me a message, I'll be glad to talk to anybody. And it doesn't matter whether it's Democrat, Republican. I enjoy talking to people regardless of their political side. As long as it's professional, it's clean, it's polite. I'm not a fan of ugliness and the ugliness that exists in our political system. I think we need to get away from some of that ugliness. We can have our political differences, but there's no need to be nasty about it. Here, here, And let's hope that takes hold across the country over 2021 because we've had enough nastiness over the last year. And until next time, so long. Mm-hmm.